Welcome to The Lifted Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Denham. I'm a confidence mentor for women, and this is a place for us to talk about what we're doing every day to raise our vibration and understand ourselves more deeply as energetic beings and co-creators. My intention is to help you clear out any mental or spiritual blocks that are keeping you from leading the most happy, fulfilling, successful life that you could possibly lead. This podcast is about activating our highest potential, healing in mind, body, and spirit, and above all, holding space for our humanity as we explore the depths of what it means to be human. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode. Today's going to be a really special one. We are joined by the wonderful Eliane El Amiuni today. I found her on TikTok probably about a year ago, and I just couldn't get enough of her content. She is an incredible storyteller. She's so smart. And it feels like I'm in school every time I'm on her page. And she just has the most beautiful, profound insight into self-mastery, into alchemy and spirituality, and has a really interesting and unique way of tying it into the stories that we're all so familiar with, whether it be from religious texts or from Shakespeare etc. Um, she's just such a fascinating person. And finally, I got the insight in the ping to be like, Oh, my God, I've got to have her on the podcast. And it's a really good time to be speaking with her because we do talk about for the first half of this episode, what's going on in Gaza. And so I want to give you a heads up about that, because I know this is a, a touchy conversation subject for many of us. And we're all going through an immense collective grief as we watch what's going on over there. And I want to let you know that we're, we're certainly really touching on the tragedy from the Palestinian uh, perspective, and not even perspective, we're really taking a look at um, the genocide that is occurring over there right before our very eyes and trying to understand how we can come back to our humanity. Um, but I want to tell you that because I, I want to open this up by really acknowledging our Jewish brothers and sisters as well, and certainly setting the intention to understand that by no means are we washing over the tragedy that has been ongoing for the Jewish community um, in present day and in the past. And I think the importance of a conversation like this is to ensure and do our best to speak out when we're watching events unfold that go against our deepest nature of love and of together togetherness as a global family. So that's why we're really zeroing in on the Palestinian struggle right now, because it's just unbelievable what's happening over there at scale. We're nearing a number of almost 10,000 civilians being um, killed over there. So that's why we're really honing in on that. And I just want to reiterate that so that we don't feel like we're washing over um, the story of Jewish people as well. And I want to acknowledge that. So that's the preface. So get ready for that conversation for the first half. Um, and and really also I want to say that we're differentiating the politics from the human beings. You know, I think we're talking a lot about how politics can shape us and how we can come back to our sovereignty and our autonomy when a political agenda is trying to push us in a certain direction and just trying to clear our minds so that we can come back to the truth of what's really going on um, outside of a political agenda. So I think we can kind of all relate to that. I think we've all felt frustration with our government at one time or the other and felt a sense of powerlessness in so many ways. So I hope this conversation can 
can be empowering for you and give you some more insight into a population of people that we might not be so familiar with. Um, I think we have seen this come up a lot in conversation over the last 10 years especially, um, but we know that black and brown people and their lives are often overlooked on a global stage. Um, So I think we need to be really sensitive to that and again, coming back to our humanity and giving a voice to people who have not been paid attention to in recent years. So yeah. That's what I'll say about that. Okay, so that's the first half of the conversation. The second half, we're getting more into what alchemy is and how Eliane understands and teaches alchemy. Uh, We talk about self-mastery. We talk about the life of Jesus as an ascended master and a teacher and, you know, all the all the interesting things. So I'll just tell you a little bit more about her. Eliane is a writer, teacher, and she's a PhD researcher at the University of Waterloo studying Palestinian political identity expression. She wrote her master's on the connections between Jungian dream analysis, modern poetry, and occult symbolism, and has had an interest in all things alchemical and symbolic her entire life. So enjoy this episode, you guys. Let us know how it lands with you. Um, And if you look in the description below, you'll see links to follow her on Instagram and TikTok. She's wonderful. Thank you for entering with an open heart and an open mind. And quick reminder that enrollment closes on November 3rd at midnight for the Confidence Mentorship. It's a great time to join. You get a discount for doing so before the holidays kick off. This is a four-month intensive healing journey where we're really building your self-esteem from the ground up using a very spiritual and action-oriented approach. Okay, thanks for tuning in and I'll talk to you on the flip side. Eliane, thank you so much for being here. The first question that I've started to ask guests is actually, what does your heaven on earth look like? I mean, I don't want to be cheesy, but I mean, I I feel like I'm living my heaven on earth Mm -hmm. every day in a way. Like, I know that the world is not great. I I know that everything is not ideal or utopic but it's it's good still I feel like every day I get a little bit better at seeing the beauty of things infusing more beauty into things I guess if I had to say if I had to change something maybe heaven on earth would include a free Arab world mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. I love to a free world, totally like a demilitarized world. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be gorgeous? I like. I love that um, you're talking about it in terms of optimism too. As even though things are kind of crumbling, it seems like on a collective level to to maintain a sense of optimism. That's what I think about when I when I think of like heaven on earth as a tagline. It's more of like a call to action and what makes us feel empowered during the day. So, and I'd love to talk with you more about the Arab world in general, what's going on over in Gaza, but um, to kind of tail end on that, what kind of practices or rituals do you typically bring into your day that help you to stay grounded and feeling good and in alignment? Yeah, well, um, most of them I'm teaching now in my alchemy program, but we started with the basics. So number one is not looking at my phone for at least an hour before, after getting up, like at least I have at least an hour, if not two to myself before immersing myself and my mind into the world. Um, Meditation and 
some stretching, some movement every day for at least a few minutes. Water, lots of water, always by me. I got a big bottle of water with me right now. <laughs> um, staying with my breath, watching my tone, like when I'm getting really passionate or annoyed with something, triggered by something, I always stop to notice my behavioral changes before anything else. So, you know, either my voice starts to get really nasal or high-pitched or I start to get shaky or I clench my jaw or I clench my fist. So I always stop to see what physiological, behavioral things I can loosen and just recenter in before reacting slash responding. That usually helps to, like, it just puts you in... At least it puts me in a good place to observe what is triggering me exactly. Like, why am I getting so worked up? Especially when it's something that I have no stake in. Like a lot of, we, we often as humans, we just get upset over things that we have no stake in. Like, let's say for Americans, the politics of the Middle East. Like, there's no direct stake for you to be too upset about it. You can have a leveled conversation. You can educate yourself in a balanced way without getting upset. Of course, it is upsetting. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't have compassion for the people in the situation or understanding for how awful or horrid it is. But I think it's a, a balance between recognizing the terror of the world and appreciating the privilege to be able to observe it from afar, learn from it, and have a deep knowing that, like all tyranny in history, it is going to end. It has to end. Slavery ended. Apartheid in South Africa ended. The wall in Berlin fell. The West Bank wall will fall. Mm. The, the apartheid will fall. It will end. It has nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what do you wish that people understood about what was going on over there? First of all, I love that you're talking about just managing our reactionary states because everybody, we're all so fired up right now. And pretty much every morning we wake up to some new headline that is extremely triggering. So I just love that you're able to tune in, drop in and check in before you respond to something or react to something like a lot of us do. But um, in the midst of this all where we're kind of relying honestly on influencers or people to get our news from, which is um, a little dangerous, uh, what do you wish people understand about the reality of what's going on over there and maybe just a little bit of history that's digestible that the masses might not understand or an American like myself might not quite grasp? Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure you've heard the words, you know, so far, colonialism, occupation, apartheid. So I'm going to try and explain this in a brief way without having to chew up all the same terms. But before I answer that, in terms of your first question, one thing I wish people or I hope people can embrace, especially now, is uh, some rhetorical tact, some rhetorical skill. So it, propaganda is all rhetoric, all news and also, not just propaganda. Everything we do is 
rhetorical. Like if I were here right now with you crying and screaming and being all impassioned talking about this, no one wants to listen to me. That's bad rhetoric. And uh, let's say empire or the West is very good at staying uh, unemotional, logical, unimpassioned, and delivering horrible truths in a very passive way that makes you feel like, oh, well, this is this must be true. I mean, look how calm they are. They they are confident. But it is important that we develop some rhetorical skills to recognize when we're being lied to. The first one one thing uh, I can say, maybe something people can take with them, is the number one rule in good storytelling, rhetorical storytelling, is that you show and not tell. And you will know that you're being lied to when someone is just telling you what's happening, just telling and not showing. Like I've been seeing a lot of um, Zionist Israelis, most of them, most of them immigrated from the U.S. to live in Israel in settlements, uh, posting on social media saying, oh my gosh, you guys have no idea what's happening here on the ground. We're here on the ground. We're doing all the things. We're, we're, we're. So show us. Show me, show me what you're going through because the Palestinians are showing me. They have been showing us every day for 75 years in all the ways that they could. And I don't think uh, the occupation, when it was first established, the state of Israel in 48 and then in its expansion in 67, I don't think they were anticipating the internet and probably didn't expect that there would be the opportunity for anyone to twist or change the dominant narrative, which is what history has relied on for so long. Colonialism, historical colonialism, has benefited from the lack of global connection between peoples, the feeling of being so far from something that it has nothing to do with you. And the internet has turned us, turned the world into one big home where there are all these rooms and you can go wherever you want and you can see what you want and you can recognize that all of these people, whether they're in the rooms that you enjoy and agree with or in the rooms that you cannot stand, these are all part of the human family and on the microcosmic scale, a part of you. So for me, for example, this has been... This the last two, two and a half weeks, almost three weeks now, they've been such a test of my spiritual practice, my spirituality, because my goal, or I think the highest aim of the things that I do in alchemizing is something I've said before, and that's turning enemies to friends, turning haters to friends. And I have said this and I have preached it and I have had discussions with people I disagreed with about so many things, but there isn't anything so pertinent. There hasn't been anything so pertinent as Palestine. And now is the real test of, well, can I genuinely understand the logic of what I disagree with? Can I approach someone who 
is telling you, do you condemn Hamas? Like for the bazillionth time, can I with love open their eyes or ask them the right question in true curiosity to help them see that even the question here is a rhetorical tact. When, when people are being brought to the stage to speak as Arabs, as pro-Palestinians, by asking people, well, do you, like, before we do anything else, do you condemn Hamas? I always watch this and I, I, I've been just every time, like, so baffled because why? What is the implication here that I'm guilty until proven innocent? That I, as an Arab, as a pro-Palestinian, have to prove myself to be anti-violence by condemning Hamas? The rhetorical game here is that the Palestinian has not inflicted uh, any kind of existential threat on the Ashkenazi immigrated Jewish person in Israel, not to mention the leaders of these programs, the Zionists, like the, your top Zionist, Iron Wall, revisionist uh, Zionists like Yabotinsky and Shamir and all of these early people who put the ideology together. The fact that there has been ongoing violence from these people, from these parties for 75 years makes it so strange that I, who represent the people who are in a position of defense have to be the ones to justify our nonviolence when it is the ones perpetrating violence controlling that narrative projecting their own monstrosity onto me onto these people you know there's all this for example another rhetorical show don't tell there's this constant allusion to, well, you know, the Hamas charter 50 years ago, they said they want to kill all the Jews. And I mean, isn't that horrific? Isn't that horrid? Well, you know, it's so funny that you would find words so horrid, but the acts thereof, not so much. They're saying they want to eradicate Jews and Israelis are eradicating Palestinian peoples. They are doing what this party is being condemned for saying. So when did the when did the verbal act become heavier, become more implicative than the act itself? Now you're, mm -hmm. now you're doing it. Isn't that what we should talk about? Rather than yeah. what Hamas said they were going to do and never had the arms or ability to do because they're pretty much living under siege with the people of Gaza, inside Gaza. Yeah. under Israel's control like it it's it's strange it's a it's a mind game mm -hmm. it's a mind game it's a rhetorical game and the west is very good at it they invented it absolutely well i really appreciate you illustrating the importance of showing instead of telling because i think i didn't know very much about the geography of this space i had no idea how small gaza was and now living in new york city i can imagine 
all of my friends and family like being you know pushed around here and um, under siege in a, a small place like this so it makes me more compassionate just as a community one community to another realizing how intense this is for for people and then also seeing somebody describe and show I had no idea it was truly like an open air prison over there where the wall has surveillance cameras everywhere going into people's homes. I had just had no idea. I'd never been educated on this. And to your point, I think about holding space for a lot of truths here, just to flip sides a little bit to have compassion and understanding for the Jewish people that were killed on October 7th and a Jewish population that has been under persecution. You know, they've experienced World War II, everything like how can we encourage people to hold space for all of these truths at once? Just because we can have compassion for Palestinians doesn't mean we don't hold compassion for Jewish people. And the Jewish population is not in alignment completely with the Zionist agenda either. So holding space for all of that and coming back to compassion and really trying to drop sides here, um, which I think people are fired, which is also complex because it's like, yeah, pro-Palestine, we're, we're supporting a people that are under um, a genocide right now. There is a side to that. And there's also a side to we can hold space and understanding, of course, for Jewish people that have ge- we're, we're still wanting all these kidnapped people back. So how do we as humans hold space for all of it, I guess, like, and, and perhaps that's alchemy? How would you how would you speak to that? Yeah, well, um, I, I feel like the bigger, uh, in terms of the Israeli population, I feel the, the the bigger victims here are the people who have been victimized by the state, the people who have been brainwashed by the state. And I've been reposting and sharing videos from Jewish people, Israeli Jewish people um, who have been unlearning Zionism, who have been realizing that they've been allied to on a gargantuan scale like in an almost at an almost unbelievable scale their whole lives and i think that the what the occupation has done is occupy people's minds and it's them that are on the the front like at the 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 front of my heart i want to say they're the first people on my mind the people who think that oh yes the everyone hates you Everyone hates you. The Arab world hates you. Europe hates you. They threw you away and they threw you here and the Arabs didn't want you. And that's why they've been attacking you. And, you know, this was promised to you by God. And it's a whole mess of ethno-religious manipulation come together by people who don't actually believe in any of this and are just after resources, after wealth, after power. And I, uh, like you said, to avoid the both sides rhetoric, because again, that is also a rhetorical trap for you to think, well, this is a war and there are two sides and it's Israelis versus Palestinians. When the reality is that Europe, all of Europe, Christian Europe is guilty for the prosecution of the Jewish people for thousands of years not the Middle East, not the Palestinians, not anyone. If we are going to hold space truly for the grief of uh, Holocaust survivors and their descendants and people who have been persecuted for so long and carry that trauma with them, then we need to demand, if anything, um, that Christian Europe pay the repercussions. Christian Europe find its way to 
quote unquote, repent for what it has done, rather than uh, shoot two birds with one stone, which is essentially what it's done in Israel, the establishment of the state, the occupation of the land, etc. All of this is, on the one hand, Europe's way of getting rid of Europe's Jews, because they hate them. And on the other hand, having a representative on the land that they have spent, they had spent already almost 2,000 years trying to infiltrate and occupy. Colonization, the, especially the colonization of Jerusalem, of Palestine, uh, is an extension of the Crusades. Um, it's an extension of, well, uh, we need to take Christ's home back from the barbarians. And it's so funny because so much projection is involved in it, in, in, in that by calling these people barbarians, I justify my own barbaric actions without even seeing it. Like when you're mad at someone and you call them selfish, even though without you realizing you're the one being selfish in the situation, you're, you're projecting, except yeah. it's happening on like this mass macrocosmic governmental scale mm -hmm. what was the, did i answer the question <laughs> yeah absolutely i think this is all just so informative and helpful and helps us understand our humanity a little bit better because the the other question i wanted to ask you about was the idea of a homeland and people feeling drawn and connected to a space. Because I think what's happening on a global kind of consciousness level is that as people are becoming citizens of the world, the idea of borders are starting to fade a little bit. And that is difficult for people. Like it's people have so much pride. I think Americans don't quite have that much because we're kind of a melting pot over here. But um, the idea of a homeland is interesting. And I wonder if there's space for the idea of that to be expanded so that we don't have ownership over land, which is basically the basis of colonization is owning land and the land doesn't belong to any one person um, from my perspective. But what do you think about the idea of a homeland and a claim to a plot, basically? Mm -hmm. I've never been a fan of nationalism. And even in the history of nationalism, we can see how it's even its conception it's in its birthing stages it was meant to other so the first time that word was used the nation um in in its earliest forms it was used by a man named cicero a rhetorician funny enough and he used it to describe the others the jews and the syrians who were other than rome other than the roman and developed into something that became in let's say renaissance europe uh to be connected with language we speak french they speak another dialect like french was one dialect let's say of latin and italian was another spanish was another and as these people moved away from each other developed their own dialects developed their own language from dialects we started to see what was the nation, the French nation, the Spanish nation, the Italian nation. And the advent of the printing press really sped this up because people were starting to print things in their own languages, in their own, uh, their own vulgar language or their own vernacular. And uh, 
the separation sort of began here. Now, in the in the Arab world, here's where it gets tricky because we read history and we learn history, even I as a Middle Eastern, a lot of us around the world, unless we're in the Far East, I'm going to say, just off the top of my head. But for most of us here and in the West, our understanding of Europe is Eurocentric. So to us, this was the birth of the nation. So of course, this is going to spread all over the world. But this wasn't a thing in the Arab world. There was no division in terms of language. If anything, the opposite was happening. One language was spreading via the empire, the Islamic empire and the Arabic language was spreading and making its way across what were already divided lands based on the geography, based on the land itself. So Lebanon, for example, Lebanon and Syria. Uh, there's not been, and this is the argument of you know pro-Zionists, like, oh, well, there was no Palestinian nation because there was no nation. There was no prospect of the nation. There was a prospect of the greater Arab world with a religious center that is Jerusalem that everyone was free to come and go to. My parents, my grandparents used to take the bus from here to Jerusalem every Sunday. Um, and the, the states or the, the representatives of the area or the names of the area were based on the land itself. So Lebanon is the hinterland of greater Syria. There's a, there's a large mountain range that's known, you know, that's been known since before biblical times as the Lebanon mountains. And that's where the Lebanon land begins, the Syrian land ends, or vice versa. And then where the desert begins is the crossing into Iraq. And where the desert in the south ends is the crossing into Egypt, the Red Sea between Egypt and uh, Saudi Arabia. So it wasn't, there was no concept of a nation. This is a purely European, and I'm even going to say capitalistic, colonial construction that then in World War I becomes imposed on the Arab world. Raise your hand if you feel like you're going through a quarter-life crisis. Oh my goodness, I've been there. This can feel like a rock bottom, like you've hit a plateau in life, like nothing's really seeming to manifest that you're calling in and you're kind of unclear on where to even turn. You know you're ready to feel better, but how exactly do you go about that, right? I know what it feels like to throw everything at the wall as well without getting results and nothing helping. That was me five years ago. If you're listening to this podcast, you you're ambitious, you're probably ready and willing to evolve and change, and you know that it's possible to lead a happy, fulfilling, purpose-driven life. You know that you could feel confident in yourself, but you just don't know where to start. This is exactly why I've created and why I offer one-on-one -on -one confidence mentorship. Our work together is to bring loving awareness to those limiting beliefs and alchemize them so that you can finally step into the woman you've always known that you could be and bring you back home to yourself. What I love about this 16-week program is that we initiate huge action in your life to help you evolve into your highest self at 10x speed. 
It's been truly amazing to see my clients quantum leap from week to week. Head over to my uh, website to take a look at those testimonials for your expansion. Um, but if this is feeling resonant on a soul level for you, if this is feeling like a full body yes, that you're ready and willing to dive into your healing journey, just click the link in the description below to apply and I'll see you on your application call. Thanks for listening. And what's different about the colonial way of conquer, because people are always like, well, what about the Arabs? They conquered and they were colonialists. Okay, but the Ottomans even, in their conquer, did not divide land based on resources, did not force move people from one place to another to implant another people. This was not the way things were done. The way it was done was, well, Islam needs to be all over the world. Everyone needs to speak Arabic. We will spread and convert people as much as possible. And whoever doesn't want to convert will pay taxes. And the the cities and the areas and towns, districts will be divided based on how the people have divided themselves naturally, indigenously, if we're going to use that word. The West came in and said, oh, well, Actually, you know, these two, they're actually harboring a whole resource for oil. So we're just going to cut up this whole piece where all the oil is, and we're going to call it Iraq. That's Iraq now. And it, they brought together like three different tribes, different types of people into one quote-unquote nation simply for capitalistic and colonial resource interest. And so obviously, like to me, I feel like the nation is the biggest joke, especially in the Arab world. And people are always like, oh, well, you know, when people have like some kind of patriotism for Lebanon, patriotism for whatever, I'm like, well, what are you even talking about? Like this border isn't even 100 years old. Mm -hmm. Like, they drew it and they didn't even tell us about it till like five years later. Like they, they drew the borders of the nations without people's consent, without their knowledge. And no, yeah. I don't know. It's, yeah, I it's think the not... thing that stuck out the most to me that you're saying here is is the invention of other and, and language becoming other or, you know, skin color becoming other. And even your mention of the printing press, I remember just from a feminist standpoint, or just women and and the suppression of women, especially in America, happened when the witch trials were beginning, and the the press started to print, you know, uh, these visuals of women looking, you know, big noses and moles and scary, whatever, um, and um, really ostracized women who were into herbal medicines, you know, the whole thing. So, um, I'm keen on the printing press and the propaganda all around for sure, but. Yeah, this is all such helpful context. And I think for everybody listening, we usually focus in, in this group, in this community on how to just work on our self-development on a daily basis, build our confidence, deepen our roots of faith and trust, and really just get to know ourselves on a deeper level. So I think this conversation could just help us understand that we can hold a lot of realities in one, in one being. Um, but what do you think, how do you hope that this changes people? Like watching this unfold on a world stage, how do you hope this, this changes our perception of self going forward? I love that question. Um, because, you know, as awful as the occupation of Palestine is, oppression happens every day 
all over the world, not just in Palestine, every single day. There was a mass genocide in Sudan a couple of days ago, and it just kind of got swept under the rug because we're busy with Palestine. But the thing about Palestine is that it's being live streamed. Sudan is not. The many things happening around Africa and the Far East are not. Ukraine is not. But Palestine is. And Palestine, just the all the synchronicities that come with it, Jerusalem, the house of peace that has genuinely never known peace, is such an ironic center for all of us because whether you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim, like our fundamental stories, even if you're not a believer, I'm not a believer in anything or um in any way, but I know the stories the same way that we all know the stories, and those stories make up the fabric of our deepest unconscious life. And that fabric itself is being torn open right before our eyes. We are being forced through Palestine to see, and I hope this you know doesn't come off too harsh, but to see what hypocrites we are. You know, the, the greatest symbol for me in all of this is the hypocrisy that uh, Israel represents. To be democratic, to be free, to be love, to be for all, but also at the same time to run a full-blown apartheid occupation. <laughs> like, it's so, it's on on the ground and and at this scale, it feels cognitively dissonant, but... If you were to look within yourself and as a spiritual person, especially, and think of how you say that, well, I accept all and I love all and I hold space for all and I kill all, all, all. But if somebody were to just just mildly step on your tail, just mildly get in your way, mildly be your opposite for a moment, would you have space for all genuinely? Do we, can we actually say that we do? Like even me, I find myself, like I said in the beginning, this has been the greatest spiritual challenge because I always talk about how important it is to learn the logic of what you disagree with. That is what alchemy is, to bring the shadow to light, to bring the shadow to truth and to speak truth without fear, to do it even if you have fear. But then I am opposed by a Zionist in my comment who says, well, what about Hamas? Or, well, you know, we can't occupy land that we're indigenous to. Or, see, even now, even in the way that I'm copying these people, is that love? Is that my sense of love coming through me? No. That's, that's a kind of hate. That's a kind of darkness. And that's my own hypocrisy that you just got to observe right now. Totally. Yeah, that we're all moving through. Yeah, every time we get triggered yeah. by something, of course. Mm -hmm. We all have. And Palestine is it. It is mm -hmm. it embodied, broken open from the deepest well of our unconscious. This is Jerusalem. Literally, the house of peace It is literally divided into east and west Jerusalem. Forget Gaza, like in you know, Jerusalem, the West Bank, the wall. That's the holy land. Yeah. The holy land, like... Mm -hmm. This is it. Totally. Well, 
it reminds, I want to ask you too, as we kind of shift a little bit, because you post so many amazing stories on your platform. Like I love to go to your page to watch stories, like biblical stories. Cause I think stories, fables, any like storytelling just resonates with people on a different level. I feel like, and I know you've studied like occult symbols and just like, there's so much that it's especially packed into religion. I love religion. Um, so I want to ask you about Jesus as a person and why he was so important and who you think Jesus was like as a real person and why we haven't had a prophet like this since, or, or anything like this really since. And I don't know anything you want to say about Jesus, because I'm just fascinated by this human being that has shaped our entire world, you know? Yeah, I love Jesus as well. And obviously I love religions and stories. The last episode of Game of Thrones, I think Tyrion Lannister says the most powerful thing in the world isn't weaponry. It's not armies. It's not hate. It's not anything. It's stories. And Bran has all our stories, and that's why he should be king for all the Game of Thrones fans. I know yes. season eight was a flop, but still, that was a good line. Powerful, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Jesus, why we haven't had another, and who I see him as. I, to me, Jesus is a movement. Um, Jesus represented a uh, to me, at least, a rhetorical revolution. When I imagine him, I imagine lots of resistance groups. So it was in a place like this, like where I am, I often imagine him running through banana trees and cedars here when I'm like taking a walk. And there were lots of resistance groups around his time, resistance to the Jewish priests, resistance to the Roman occupation. Um, of Palestine, funny enough. Um, There were a lot of resistances, but Jesus's resistance was different in that it was peaceful. And I think that's embodied in that last moment where they ask, well, who are we going to, who are we going to crucify? Is it going to be Barabbas or is it going to be Jesus? And if you think about it, both of the characters here are resistors. They're freedom fighters. But one of them is violent and one of them is peaceful. And Jesus, with a group of friends, essentially, I imagine him just going around infecting people's minds, telling them to think again. You know, don't just don't just drink the juice, like smell it first, see what it's made of. And uh, don't let it don't let it take you over. Really, really think about it. Not to mention that. Uh, Jesus's time was also a very prominent time for intellectual and philosophical thought in Alexandria, Egypt, which would develop after his death, would flourish uh, after his death. There was already um, talk of alchemy and alchemical study. There were monks coming from the Far East to share ideas and philosophies in Alexandria. And I think it is uh, a, I think he was like, like an amalgamation of influences that said, it's time for change. It's time for the end of the tyranny, essentially, of our one God, our one king, our one empire. 
it's it's a revolution and as a revolution i he becomes he becomes all of us he becomes a symbol we we are christ everyone that came after him was christ um everyone who moved the shift who who was part of the tide turning became christ what happens after the tide turns who takes over what malicious forces then twist the words and hide things then we go back to the moment when jesus showed up saying all right it's time for us to think again and i think we're there now as well right. uh it's, it's time for us to think again we've been told so much and a lot of it is lies and we deserve to know every individual deserves to know their own truth their genuine true self what they genuinely believe without the dogma because the stories are beautiful but the dogma and the literalism spoils it it robs us of yeah. actually allowing it to enhance our life enrich our life enrich our understanding of the world mm -hmm. and jesus was good at doing that he would pull a lot of his stories and parables were from the old testament he would bring up stories told by isaiah he would bring up stories and moments from the psalms and expand on them while telling people like listen we're taking a new covenant that old covenant we don't need it but remember the stories remember the lessons because they've moved away from the lessons we need to come back to that mm -hmm. so i think that's us in a way i love that i love the description of him as a freedom fighter and a movement like an enigma more than more than anything and not only a magician but i am um, you know a politician in so many ways fighting against the roman empire and i wonder you know, if he was kind of propped up on purpose around that time, like a celebrity, like, like, did I wonder if he had kind of a team around him, like pushing him up to be seen at this level. And then who wrote the New Testament? Like, what's the history of the Bible? And the, the Bible's like, who wrote this? I don't, I don't know enough about this, but who actually wrote about Jesus's story in particular? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not a theologian by any means, mm -hmm. but um, we do know that the books of the New Testament were written not all at once. We know that the whole the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, none of it was written all at once. We know that books were written before books and after books, like Genesis 1 was written afterwards, after several books had already been written, just to make it seem more real, I guess, more believable. Um, it collects myths and stories from all over the place and puts them together. And... I would say it was Hellenistic, I think, Hellenistic Greek scholars in the first and second century, early early second, late first century that wrote the books of the New Testament and then later put them together in certain ways. We have apocryphal books that were written towards the end of the second century and early third century, etc. Um, but it's a compilation. We know that it's a compilation and not like a direct uh, writing down of, oh, wow, this just happened. We need to write it all down. It's a collection of stories over time, myths that belonged to a people that were then, you know, moved to another people, uh, annotated or changed by other people. And the stories are old. The thing about Jesus is that, and a, a lot of people do the thing where they're like, oh, well, you know, 
there's there's ancient Egyptian gods who were born on the exact same date and they had the same number of apostles. They had that they were a trinity, blah, blah, blah. But that's not entirely true because the power of Jesus particularly is that it brought together. And again, I mean, this is kind of propaganda. Uh, this is a, a rhetorical, very rhetorically tactful. The story of Jesus brings together a lot of old tropes in a completely new way. The idea of the virgin birth, the following of the star, the connection to a trinity, the 12 disciples, um, all of it, the death and resurrection. These are stories that exist independently before Jesus for a long time. So they already exist in the subconscious of the ancient peoples that live in our subconscious and are brought together in Jesus' story in a completely new, unique constellation that appealed to a lot of people, East and West. It had elements of polytheism, elements of monotheism, elements of a-religious spirituality, all enough things to say, oh, wow, this is fantastic. This really sums it all up. If you were way back then, it would be like your own unconscious material and the stories you've been growing up with and knowing all coming together in this like, I don't know, Avengers movie, if, if you will. That makes a lot of sense. That's fascinating. It really helps to put it into context, uh, you mm -hmm. know, about what this character was and and how, you know, all of this can affect us. And just like you're saying, we we hold these kind of codes on a on a very subconscious level, almost kind of an epigenetic level of these stories are deep in our in our bones. So I guess on a personal level for you, what started to draw you to the study of religion and spirituality even from the beginning? Was there a turning point in your life early on where you started to really get drawn to stories, drawn to self-discovery? Like what has your journey been like? Yeah. Um, mine's a little weird because I just kind of um, came out of the womb like this. I had a very early experience with I want to say the divine or like you could you could call it the divine call it psychospiritual you could just call it a psychotic break I was just very young when it happened I was like six years old the first time and I had already been reading a lot and I my parents um, were very spiritual in their own way like my mother is a dream reader she's always been a dream reader that's just been a given in my life, when you dream, it's important and you have to tell your mom. Everybody tells my mom their dreams because she interprets everyone's dreams and she's a prophetic dreamer. So if she dreams something, it happens. And that's just always been the case. So I've always known, I've always been taught to have reverence for my dream life. Um, my father was in Freemasonry and was into the esoteric and had a lot of spiritual friends like rabbis and uh, sheikhs and priests and they were my mentors uh, growing up and none of them were ever literalists I was really lucky that all of my spiritual mentors religious mentors were spiritual as opposed to literal they always taught me to think for myself they always indicated towards what symbolism 
I was seeing or learning and how that reflected within me and how to hold that within myself and recognize it and see it outside myself and in others. Um, it was, it was just the way, it was just the way that I have been to grow up and I've always been an avid reader of everything. So, and I was about come in around six or seven, we would learn Arabic at the church. We learned Arabic through the Bible and had a lot of questions about Jesus very, very early on. So I read like extra, extra religious books, extra theological, like books that aren't religious books about him because people have written about him so much. Like people have imagined him. I think you might enjoy one actually, if you're really interested in the character, there's a book called Jesus, son of, son of man by Gibran Khalil Gibran. And it's a collection of interviews, fake interviews with people who knew him. So like his grandmother, Mary's mother, and then Mary herself and some of the apostles, some people, and some people loved him. Some people hated him. Some people called him a corrupter of youths like Socrates. Um, there, there's a lot. It's a very interesting book. And it also Hickey, brings the character to life. I would love to yeah, read just, that. Son, son of God. What is it called? Yeah. Jesus, son of man. Son of man. Mm -hmm. And the book of longings I really love too, which is more about like, um, you know, a story of Jesus's wife. It's uh, uh, mm -hmm. fiction, but uh, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Totally continue though. I was just cutting you off, but yeah, dreams. The, the fact that you're growing up with a mom who's really interested in dreams around mm -hmm. all of these spiritual beings that weren't literalists. It sounds like you had a, a beautiful early, early foundation for this. So then it sounds like you went to study um, Jungian dream psychology. So how did that play into your you know, facets of understanding from your own experience in, in your family to then have it kind of put into a study, you know, what did you learn from that? Did you agree with what you learned? What came through? Yeah, just, it, it honestly expanded my ability to, to share what I knew. I think the best thing about education and the only reason I would ever encourage someone to get an education is um, for its ability to help you systematize your knowledge. It teaches you how to compartmentalize, how to organize, and how to express and relate what you have in your head. Maybe before that, I'd say I would have a more difficult time holding all the things that I was learning and knowing. And I was already, by then, I had moved away from spirituality and more towards philosophy. And by the time I reached my master's, I was so deep in philosophy. My my teenage years were dedicated simply to reading uh, angsty, angry uh, European philosophy. And I was far from the spiritual, I was far from uh, alchemy and all of that. But then I, in a class in my undergrad, discovered the tarot. And in a, from a poem, from a T.S. Eliot poem. And then from the tarot, I discovered alchemy. And then through alchemy, I discovered Carl Jung. And it was when I discovered Jung and found him saying everything that I had been feeling for the, for the few years that I was getting more into this, I saw someone of authority expressing what I thought was inexpressible. 
because what I was starting to see was, you know, my dreams, the poetry, the best poetry in the world. It's this, it's, it's this alchemy thing, like whatever this, this study, this ancient thousand year old study, it's Jesus. This is what Jesus was doing. He was doing alchemy. And someone is saying it, not just me. Like, I would write these thoughts to myself in my journals and think I was absolutely nuts because, like, how do you say that? I don't know. And when I found Jung, I found great solace and great relief in great comfort in the fact that someone of authority, someone respected, someone in the field could see what I was seeing and had done extensive work to make it clear why he saw it. And I just dove in like it was, it was perfect. <laughs> it was aligned. What a fascinating journey to go kind of in and around from a spiritual knowing into, you know, a more typical school program, basically to have it all be interconnected. That's so, it's so fascinating. And Jung studied under Freud, right? And then they split or was it the other way around? Right. So it's interesting how Jung started to to spread out and it seems like had a little bit more of an esoteric take on things or a more holistic take on things. Yeah. How was he, how was he different when you started? What really drew you to Jung? Like, I know you were saying he was kind of um, expressing and organizing the thoughts that you hadn't been able to necessarily articulate yet in such a beautiful way. But what else was he describing, especially about dreams and analysis of um, the personality that really stuck out to you? The first thing I think that caught my eye from him was synchronicity. It was through synchronicity that I dove into everything else because synchronicity is the like the central mystery of all of it. The fact that the, the mental life, the unconscious mental life, as well as the conscious, are somehow connected to or made of the same matter of the physical world. This is the central mystery of alchemy, of psychology, of Jungian psychology, of, of all of it, of spirituality. What is this connection? What, is, what does it mean to say the above is of the below and the below is of the above? And synchronicity is what enacts the central mystery. And synchronicities are what I saw my whole life all the time, the the fact that we can have prophetic dreams, the fact that I can think of something and then it can show up, the fact that uh, someone, I can think of someone and they'll contact me within a few days, even though there hasn't been contact between us in forever, and a million other things. Like life is, we're surrounded by synchronicity. And I think the mystery of it is still uh, beyond us. So it started there. And when I looked, there, I found him working with a physicist, uh, a Nobel, the Nobel physicist Wolfgang Pauli, on the physics, the actual quantum reality of synchronicity. Because Pauli, he discovered that there was something between him and technology. There, the synchronicity that he was constantly observing was the fact that technology did not want to work around him. Machines wanted to break down when he was around and he wanted to know why this is where his, his uh, inquiry into it started. And then there were letters between him and Jung and this whole discussion on it. So I started there and I 
started to find how, I started to understand more what is meant between the above is of the below and the below is of the above. Because it's the same thing we said at the beginning. The strife in Palestine, the hypocrisy of the Israeli state is my hypocrisy. It's all of our hypocrisy. The oppression of the world is our oppression of the world, our, our oppression of ourselves. Reality is made of the stuff of dreams. Dreams are real. They are their own realm of reality. They're their own twist on what is before us as we see it with our limited senses in our waking life. And really everything and anything like I could go on forever, even in terms of astrology. And I don't mean like, you know, horoscopes and, you know, your typical contemporary astrology as much as the understanding that this is all the same stuff on a scientific level, the stuff of stars, it's what runs your body right now. It's what moves the breath. It's what's moving us to speak. The stuff of exploding stars. It's, it is what it is, Yan. It, I don't need to be spiritual or superstitious or anything to know these things. Yeah. Like I said, I don't have any beliefs. I, I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not religious in any way. We're exploring always. Mm -hmm. But yeah, exactly. And there are always, there's always more to explore. So Jung showed me this endless avenue of things, showed me how all of these quote unquote experiments that alchemists were doing, these were one experiment. This was one experiment being repeated by thousands of people. One experiment to say, this is how I become my best self. And for a long time, I think, where we went astray or where we go astray or where in our Western thinking we, we lose sight of what it is, is when we think that there is an external paradigm that needs to be applied and a goal to be reached, that we should all reach this goal. But there isn't. Your goal is, your goal is the goal within you. It's going to look totally different. Your process is going to look different. The steps you take, what you end up looking like, like for some people, their alchemization will result in their being a villain. That's, that's their truest self, to be a villain. Netanyahu, for example, I don't think in any capacity is not living his truest self. I think he is. This is the truth of this person. This is the gold of this person. We don't get to decide whether gold is good or bad. We know that it's powerful and that it has value. And that can be evil. I think uh, Harry Potter, there's a good Harry Potter quote of when, when Ollivander tells Harry, like, you know, Voldemort is a great wizard. Mm -hmm. He's terrible, but he's great. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, the, the sad reality, the tragicomic, I want to say, uh, reality of, of how it is. Yeah, we all have a role to play. Powerful. And yeah, it is fascinating. I remember this conversation I had with um, a just a, a loved family member and um, she's very, you know, kind of by the book. She's not interested in spirituality. She's like, 
you know, I just don't believe in it. How can you, how can you um, identify a God? How could you identify that there's anything bigger than us? And she was like, I'm a scientist. I think in terms of science. And we had a great conversation, just like you had illustrated about how it's all the same language. I'm like, the deeper you go into quantum physics and entanglement and the language of the stars in a very literal way, the closer you get to awe and to God, because it just opens up more mystery and more questions and more beauty. It's not this finite end. It's this incredibly magical world that we live in. And what a blessing to have that as a way to zoom out on our little existences or big existences on earth. But it's helpful to kind of zoom out and think of the globe as this kind of stage that we're all playing characters on to evolve on and then zoom out and realize, oh my God, like we're part of such an immense universe that there's so much to explore and move in and out of. And the beauty of dreams, the beauty of our practices it's, is that it seems to get us closer to I would say like out of body experiences in a way to just connect us more with um, that side of ourselves, because I think we're so embodied in a, in a good way all the time, but also we forget who we are on, um, on that level at times too, because we're so stuck in the literal, like um, tactile version of self when there's so much mm -hmm. else going on. But I love how you describe that. You know, it's, it's an expansion outward. Elian, thank you so much for being here and speaking with us. Oh my God, I just, I could ask you questions for days, but I'm going to let you get on with your day. I'm so grateful that you're here. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to, to speak on before we go? Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I, mean, I should like ask I you said... actually uh, what you're reading, anything you're researching or you're reading. That's a better question. Oh, uh, well, right now I've been reading uh, things for my uh, alchemy program because I'm giving them literature to read and we meet every two weeks to discuss. And this week I read uh, King Lear. Just right Love. here, I was, mm -hmm. I was taking the notes before we started. Um, it's a fantastic read. I really love Shakespeare. And I definitely encourage any English speaking person to read Shakespeare, even if you don't like it, because it's the kind of thing that you only like the more you read it. Because at first it's like a different language. But again, Shakespeare lives in our subconsciousses. There are many histories of people that we know today through Shakespearean plays, they live in our memory as a collective via Shakespeare's writing of them. So I'm reading that. I'm reading Alchemy and Introduction by Mary Louise von France. That's also part of our program. And of course, just, you know, all the random things that I find throughout the day. I love that you should said uh, Shakespeare. I so I'm subletting a place in New York right now, and um, this this girl I don't know who she is, but she's fabulous. Her she's got a whole bookshelf of Shakespeare, and I'm like I should probably pick up one of those books. So now that you've said that, yeah, here we go. Um, and then tell the us a little bit about oh exactly, um, tell us about your program, your um your program that's meeting every couple of weeks. Alchemy. Well, we're it's called Alchemy 101, and um, essentially trying to give well I'm giving people the tools that have helped me reach the place that I am in my spiritual practice obviously in condensed form because I've done a, a lot of digging and reading and researching and work and breaking down and having visions and all of the things and I feel like I've reached a place where I can make something digestible 
that people can use to have the tools to enhance their life experience, you know, regardless of what's happening, to be able, for example, to hold space uh, for all these different atrocities, atrocities that we're witnessing and be able to take a step back and say, okay, this is how I can help. This is how I can contribute. Because the ultimate goal, from what I've learned from all of these years, the greatest goal of all of it is not just to find out who you are and what you're good at and to be golden. But the point of being golden is to be of value to the world. The mm. symbol, the metaphor of gold is a metaphor of utmost uncorruptible value in the world. Meaning that when we do alchemy, we're trying to find out what we're good at, where we are centered, and how we can move in our center and our truth to contribute to the world, to help the world. So that's pretty much what we're doing, but in a very, um, in, a, in a different way. I've like curated a, um, a different kind of course. We use Discord, music, movies, readings, mm -hmm. personal exercises, inner work and outer work. Yeah, I love it. I'm, I, I'm I love very it. much enjoying it. It's like magic school, alchemy school. Yes. And, and people can join anytime. Is it open for enrollment? Um, it is now, like it's been open, but um, I am closing it this Sunday because we already started like two weeks ago. And at this point, like after the week, after the first week is gone and we've got the second week going, it'll be difficult for people to totally. to catch up because we did start with like grounding practices yeah. Um, like well, people can just tune into you in the meantime and join you on your next round if they're hearing it um, on this Wednesday. Um, fabulous. Yeah. So TikTok is your main platform, right? It's like you you just, I would highly recommend people follow you at, at Twitchy Witch, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. one of my favorite pages to follow. And your Instagram, can we follow you on Instagram or is it more TikTok? Yeah, no, both is great. I like Instagram because I can share memes and stories and photos and, you know, poems and other stuff but tiktok is my main account but now that like this is all happening i am creating less videos and curating more content mm -hmm. so for content curation um instagram definitely books movies resources places to go things to look at that's that's all being shared through instagram and discord of course yeah and what's your handle on instagram also twitchy witch gorgeous okay thank you so much for being here all right my friends thank you for tuning in and hanging out with us today i hope you're feeling inspired and uplifted and called to action if you feel like a buddy might benefit from what you heard in this conversation please do share it to your stories leave a review if you feel called and i'm sending you so much love talk to you on the next one